Support for the Legislative Gazette comes from New York State United Teachers, a union of professionals standing with more than 600,000 workers in education, human services, and health care with the Our Voice, Our Values, Our Union campaign. And United University Professions, representing 37,000 academic and professional employees at SUNY campuses and teaching hospitals across New York State. Frederick E. Cole, President, UUPinfo.org. President Joe Biden visited Syracuse this week on Thursday to celebrate the $100 billion investment in central New York from the semiconductor and chip company Micron Technology. Reporting for the Legislative Gazette, WRVO's Ava Pukach reports. If there was a theme of Thursday's Micron event at Onondaga Community College, it would probably be hope, with Governor Cappy Hochul saying, How do you spell hope in New York? It's M-I-C-R-O-N. That's how you spell hope. M-I-C-R-O-N. We are grateful to you. President Joe Biden, a Syracuse University Law School graduate, was welcomed back to Syracuse by a packed crowd to celebrate one of the largest investments in American history. He said the Micron investment will ensure a future made in America. It should give us a sense of optimism and hope about who we are as a nation, and it's part of a broader story about an economy we're building and one that works for everyone. The positions America put America in the win a position to win the economic competition of the 21st century. And again, that's not an exaggeration. It's literally an accurate statement. The president continued to stress a made in America mindset, saying his administration has created 700,000 manufacturing jobs so far. Where is it written that the United States of America can't be the manufacturing capital of the world? Think about this. No, I, I, I mean it sincerely. Where in the hell is it written that says we cannot be, as we've been hearing for the last 25 years, the manufacturing capital of the world? Micron CEO Sanjay Marotra received a standing ovation before and after his remarks. He said once the Micron plant is fully built, it will produce nearly 4 billion chips a year, with each chip containing billions of bits of information. The fabs that we built right here in clay will be critical part of Micron's global manufacturing network, creating leading-edge memory chips to be used in most demanding electronic applications worldwide, everywhere. Senator Chuck Schumer, who helped lead the charge on the Chips and Science Bill, said Biden's legacy in Syracuse is secured there forever. Syracuse has always been part of President Biden's history. But now, thanks to the president's leadership, Mr. President, you have changed Syracuse's history forever. So this is a great day for upstate New York, a great day for America. That's WRBO's Ava Pukach reporting for the Legislative Gazette. Listening to the Legislative Gazette, a program about New York State government and politics. I'm David Gustino. Joining us now, Legislative Gazette political observer Alan Shartalk. 
Allen Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer was caught Thursday on a hot mic in Syracuse telling President Joe Biden that Democrats are, quote, going downhill in Georgia and expressing disbelief that Republican Herschel Walker might win the Senate race. Quote, the state where we're going downhill is Georgia, he told Biden. It's hard to believe that they will go for Herschel Walker. More footage on the hot mic moment showed Schumer expressing concern over the Democrats' chances. We're in danger in that seat, Schumer told the president in Syracuse. It's unclear which seat he's referring to, however. So the leadership of the Democratic Party worried. David, the one thing that uh, I think we should have all learned by now, anybody in a position of either power or influence, is keep your mouth shut because a hot mic will pick it up. A friend will tell on you. People are not dependable to keep your secrets. And I think that that's what we saw here. If I'm a Democrat and I'm having tough times, I want to be very sure that I keep as much of it to myself other than expanding it and letting everybody know about it because that cannot help you, that's for sure. Finally, Ellen, from the Associated Press this morning, will post-Sandy repairs be enough for the next big storm? After Superstorm Sandy struck the northeast U.S. in 2012, an unprecedented effort began to fortify the densely populated coastline against the next big storm. Then last year, remnants of Hurricane Ida blew in, and the two deadly storms nearly a decade apart left public officials and residents alike contemplating what more needs to be done. Now take that story with the recent news from the state controller, Tom DiNapoli. Hmm. New York City needs to be better prepared for another catastrophic event. The audit of the New York City Emergency Management found weak oversight and poor management of hazard mitigation efforts, operational continuity plans, and evacuation plans. As you know, David, I am a huge Tom DiNapoli fan, and he's right. Based on what we have seen in Florida, based on what we have seen in parts of New York City, based on the kind of catastrophes that come upon us, you can't count anything out. And the possibility that any of this stuff will happen, will hit us, is very real. So we have to be very careful about preparing with the expectation that anything can happen and will. Yeah, and a reminder that with the election in New York comes the Environmental Bond Act, $4.2 billion that will set aside money to deal with things like infrastructure. So there it is. It'll most likely for many be on the back of your ballot. Yes, and if it's on the back of your ballot, you may never turn it over, which is why one of the keys to this campaign is to turn over the ballot. These are the signs of our time when we are living in a world which is threatened by environmental disaster of one kind or another. And we can't ignore it. There will be some who want to, but we can't ignore it. It's here, and we better think about what we can do to put a stop to some of the terrible prospects which we all face. Well, Alan, you spoke with Assemblymember Deborah Glick. She Mm -hmm. is from Manhattan. Greenwich Village is in her district. And she's the chair of the Higher Education Committee in the New York State Assembly. She was glowing about current Governor Kathy Hochul and the amount of money she put in the budget for higher education. So the question is, with the recent report that SUNY schools are now millions of dollars in debt, you know, perhaps putting more money into higher education was a bit prescient, but it won't go as far. Well, look, higher education is the key to our success as a country and as a people and as a state. The fact that we are paying attention to it, that we have to pay attention to it, is inescapable in terms of our future. We know quite well that we haven't always done it the way we should. But we do have a great state university. I was pleased to work for it for years myself. 
we are in a situation where most people understand that if their kids go to college and if their kids get a chance, they can do better than if they don't have those chances. So that's where we are. Legislative Gazette political observer, Alan Shartok. Listening to the Legislative Gazette, a program about New York State government and politics. I'm David Gustina. The two candidates for New York Governor, Democratic Governor Kathy Hochul, who is seeking election to a full term in office, and Republican Long Island Congressman Lee Zeldin, sparred in a spirited debate held on Spectrum News this week that touched on crime, abortion, and threats to democracy. More now from the Legislative Gazette's Karen DeWitt. Zeldin's made fighting crime a focus of his campaign, and he says if he's elected, he intends to create a crime state of emergency. He says he'd rescind recent criminal justice reforms, including bail law changes that ended most forms of cash bail, and that he says favor criminals because the people want him to. This is our opportunity. Two weeks from tonight, we can continue with the status quo where they believe they haven't passed the pro-criminal laws, or we could take control of our destiny and make sure law-abiding New York are in charge of our streets again. Hochul says she oversaw changes to the state's bail laws to make more crimes bail eligible, but she says the answer to curbing crime is not that simple. First of all, you can either work on keeping people scared or you can focus on keeping them safe. And she says decreasing the number of illegal guns has to be part of the solution. There is no crime-fighting plan if it doesn't include guns, illegal guns, and you refuse to talk about how we can do so much more. You didn't even show up for votes in Washington when a bipartisan group of enlightened legislators voted for an assault weapon ban. Hochul repeatedly brought up Zeldin's congressional record, including his vote on January 6, 2021, against certifying the 2020 presidential election, which Joe Biden won and Donald Trump lost. Zeldin says he voted against the certification because he was concerned over potential technical problems with voting in Pennsylvania and Arizona, allegations that were later proved unfounded. Hochul also several times during the debate tied Zeldin to Trump, who has endorsed Zeldin in the race and is unpopular in New York, asking the congressman at one point whether he thinks Trump was a great president. Is Donald Trump a great president? I worked closely with him on a, a yes number or no. of important yes policies. Or no. Zeldin demurred, instead recounting economic development projects Trump brought to Long Island and crediting him for his handling of the pandemic. The congressman steered his remarks several times to questions over campaign donations Hochul has received and whether there was pay-to-play involved in state purchase orders, including one awarded to a donor who delivered COVID tests. Hochul says there was no quid pro quo and that she follows the rules. Zeldin also questioned the $1 billion deal the governor cut to build the Buffalo Bills a new stadium, saying it was too favorable and that if elected governor, he would renegotiate the deal. Giving a multi-billion dollar owner of a football team all of the, this tax dollars, which is yours as the governor, you're actually supposed to be a steward of the money. The debate also addressed abortion rights following the U.S. Supreme Court's overturning of the landmark abortion decision Roe v. Wade in June. Zeldin, who opposes abortion, says he won't change New York's law, which codified the rights in Roe into state statute. 
but he would not directly answer a question on whether he'd sign a bill banning abortion in the state if the legislature passed one, saying that in blue New York, that's not going to happen. When we woke up the day after the Dobbs decision, the law in New York was exactly the same as it was the day before, and I'm not going to change that. Hochul, who backs abortion rights, says the only reason nothing changed after the Supreme Court's Dobbs decision is because she is governor, and she cast doubt on Zeldin's promise not to interfere with New York's abortion rights laws, saying he voted in Congress to ban abortion. You even said how on the first day Thank you're you. willing to suspend laws. How do we know you won't do it then? I don't trust this. The women you. don't trust this. There are no more scheduled debates between the candidates between now and Election Day. In Albany, I'm Karen DeWitt. The Amazon Labor Union is objecting to the results of the recent union election at the retailer's Skodak Fulfillment Center, where employees chose not to organize by a two-to-one margin. The Legislative Gazette's Lucas Willard reports. The National Labor Relations Board in Albany tallied the votes at Amazon's ALB1 facility in Skodak on October 18th. The eyes of the labor world were watching, hoping the Rensselaer County facility would become the retailer's second workplace where employees voted to join the Amazon Labor Union, but the effort fell far short. Speaking to reporters that day, ALB1 Union campaign organizer Heather Goodall said supporters wouldn't give up. Until we work collectively together to fight against the violation of our rights, the violation of the law, it's going to continue. That is the challenge that we have. And we really need to spotlight the fact that these workers' voices were silenced by aggressive union-busting tactics. ALU president and founder Christian Smalls called the count a sham election. Days later, the ALU filed 23 objections with the NLRB claiming workers were threatened, coerced, and retaliated against in the run-up to the union vote. Union attorney Seth Goldstein. This isn't just like labor violations. This is really sickening and um, should not be tolerated. And I think people who, um, who are objective can see that this isn't just like an election that was lost because of lack of organizing but was done because Amazon doesn't think that, that uh, they think that they're above the law. Included in the 23 objections are complaints about consultants employed by Amazon ahead of the vote. Supporters allege they suppressed the voices of union supporters and held captive audience meetings to persuade workers to vote against organizing. An Amazon spokesperson told WAMC the meetings were held, quote, because it's important that everyone understands the facts about joining a union and the election process itself, end quote. Objections also reference employees who were disciplined or terminated, which the ALU claims is in retaliation to its organizing activities. Michael Verastro, a union supporter who is suffering from prostate cancer, was terminated from ALB1 in September, which he claims is because he kicked an empty box in a warehouse area out of frustration over working conditions. I don't know what happened, really. I mean, I, my supervisors had seen me kicking boxes in the past and had never said a word to me about it. And I'm talking at least on four or five occasions where I'd kick the box, and they more or less just shrugged their shoulders, and you know, like, like I said, no discipline, no write-up, no nothing. So then all of a sudden, out of the blue, I kick a box, and then they terminate me. Verastro said his employer knew of his union support and his outspokenness over persuasive tactics used by Amazon. Like the, in the break rooms, they would have these little display screens that said, you know, vote no or vote no on the union. And to me, it was just over the top. 
asked for comment about the objections, and Amazon spokesperson issued a statement that reads, quote, These objections and allegations are without merit, and we are confident that through this process, the majority of our employees' voices will continue to be heard, end quote. By welcoming the results of the ALB1 union election, Attorney Goldstein says Amazon is acting hypocritically as the retail giant continues to object to the first successful unionization effort in Staten Island earlier this year. It's uh, basically if you get the result you want, you're okay with it. If not, then you, um, you know, you, you litigate. For the Legislative Gazette, I'm Lucas Willard. Listening to the Legislative Gazette, a program about New York State government and politics. I'm David Gustina. Many people from the Northeast head south for the winter, but scientist Leah Trebergs will be taking it to the extreme. The Paul Smith College Adirondack Watershed Institute Research Associate is going to Antarctica for three months, starting in late November. It's her second deployment to Antarctica to study lakes and dry valleys and conduct lab analysis at McMurdo Station. Trebergs says the work there helps inform her research in the Adirondacks. She joined the Legislative Gazette's Ian Pickus this week. What does your preparation for a trip to Antarctica look like? Yeah, so a few things. Um, I have been kind of wrapping up work at Adirondack Watershed Institute in preparation to leave for three months. Um, but my preparation for going is kind of the way that any of us would prepare for a big trip, um, but specifically in a place that's very, very cold. So I am making sure I have field gear, um, layers, outerwear, in order to be able to do the kind of research that we're going to be doing out on lakes in the dry valleys. Um, And then making sure that I have kind of um, everything wrapped up back at home to be gone for three months. Um, How much of your focus while you're there is what you've just mentioned, um, you know, getting into the elements and making sure that you're staying safe versus the actual scientific research that you're there? I have to imagine, you you know, you've got to keep your eye on the prize, too. Yeah. So a lot of the the work is um, just preparing, like you said, to be out in the elements. Um, We go through a lot of training before we go out in the field. Um, so I'll be uh, experiencing training at McMurdo Station before I head into the dry valleys, which is where the field camps are. Um, and then once we're there, um, you know, there's a lot of communication with your team members to make sure that everyone's on the same page regarding safety um, anytime that we head out into the field. Um, I will be there during the summer months, which is um, the temperatures are not as extreme, I think, as some people think of when they think of Antarctica. It will likely be warmer at times there than it will be here in the Adirondacks. Wow. And so um, kind of, yeah, it's not what you what you expect. So um, in many ways, it's the same kind of preparation that we do here at Adirondack Watershed Institute when we're doing work out in the field in the winter, making sure that you're covered up and that you have communication and everyone's staying in touch about um, their safety and levels of comfort. Um, but then most of the time, you know, if that communication is, is staying effective, then it allows us to do what we need to do scientifically out in the field um, and um, achieve our objectives. 
How do you get there? What's that process like? So I will be taking a plane from um, here to the West Coast and then to Christchurch, New Zealand, um, where there is um, a uh, U.S. Air National Guard base that then flies a plane from Christchurch to McMurdo Station. Then I'll be in McMurdo Station for about a week um, doing trainings and preparing, and then I will take about a 40-minute helicopter flight out to the Dry Valleys. Um, And then once I'm in the valleys, um, most of the transportation is by helicopter as well. Wow, (laughs) that sounds exhausting. (laughs) It is, but it's exciting too. So it uh, it doesn't it doesn't feel too bad. Um, What does it look like? You know, what kind of um, sensory experience uh, is Antarctica when you do finally get there? So it's one thing I will say: it's different. The dry valleys, especially, is very different than what most people, including myself, first think of when they think of Antarctica. When I think of Antarctica, you know, I think of these kind of big icebergs and big ice shelves, a lot of snow and ice. The Dry Valleys is a section of unglaciated continent. So it's primarily ice-free and the soil, you know, you're on kind of dark brown soil. It's very, very dry. In some ways, it's more like Mars than you might think of than Antarctica. Um, so it's a very strange place to be. Um, if there's no wind, it can be very, very quiet. Um, it There are kind of these hanging glaciers coming down into the valleys, but other than that, there's not that much ice. Um, so it's very strange, but very beautiful. Let's talk about your research a little bit. What specifically are you studying and trying to learn? Yeah, so I will be going down as part of what's called the McMurdo Dry Valley's Long-Term Ecological Research Project. And that is a part of a larger network of long-term ecological research projects, or LTERs for short, that are at 28 sites across the U.S. and abroad. And these projects aim to understand how different ecosystems function and change over time. Um, and I specifically will be on the lake scheme, which is a little bit confusing when you're you know, thinking these are the dry valleys. They're called the dry valleys because they're extremely dry, they have limited precipitation, and they're ice and snow-free. Um, and so I will be working with this lakes team to understand that part of the larger dry valleys ecosystem. Maybe this is a silly question, but why is it called lakes then? Yeah, so they are, uh, there are lakes, but they're permanently ice-covered. Um, so they are, there are three lakes in this, this valley system, um, and they are there, but they're permanently ice-covered, and so there is liquid water beneath them. Well, what is the ecosystem like? Is there a lot of life in this area? There's not a lot of life, um, there is, but there is some, which is interesting, and that's what kind of we're studying. Um, there, the, the Dry Valley's ecosystem is kind of driven by the same basic processes that we find in all ecosystems, like microbial utilization and remineralization of nutrients, but they lack the confounding variables that kind of higher plants and animals, which are found almost everywhere else, bring. And so, you know, we have bacteria, we have nematodes, things like that, but we don't have any sort of higher plants or animals. And so how does the research actually work? Are you taking samples? Are you doing different types of measurements? Uh, What does the field work actually consist of? Yeah, a little bit of all of those things. So in many ways, it's very similar to the research that I do here in the Adirondacks in the wintertime. We're going to be going out, drilling holes in the ice, and then collecting water samples um, and doing measurements kind of in the water column. 
and then bringing those samples back to the lab for laboratory analysis. And what are you looking for specifically? Um, We are looking for mainly change through time. So it's hard to kind of say, oh, we're looking for X, Y, or Z kind of in context of, um, you know, hoping to find any specific thing, but rather we're looking to create um, a long-term database of certain environmental parameters so that we can sense changes through time in the system. And so how does that work relate to the Adirondacks? In other words, what you're seeing in Antarctica and what you're following, how does that inform the research you're doing uh, back here? Yeah, so one of Adirondack Watersheds Institute's primary scientific goals is to understand the ecosystem response to environmental stressors here in the Adirondacks. And climate change is at the top of that list. The McMurdo Dry Valley's ecosystem is incredibly sensitive to changes in precipitation and temperature. So what we can learn there can help us understand how our lakes and watersheds respond to climate stressors. Just to get back to you for a second, You know, I'm someone who has a hard time if I can't sleep in my own bed for one night. What is day-to-day life like when you're on a three-month deployment like this? I mean, do people watch, like, Netflix after work? Uh, What what does it look like? Uh, Well, no Netflix. The Internet is uh, not capable enough to uh, support (laughs) streaming services. They joke that the Internet in Antarctica is worse than the Internet in space. Um, But other than that, uh, kind of relaxation looks a lot like relaxation back at home. Um, We'll play games, we'll go on walks, things like that. Um, It's definitely, you know, you're working hard a lot during the day. And so um, kind of the evenings, you kind of want to chill a little bit. Um, And so the the field camps are kind of collaborative living. We all cook dinner together and then hang out in the the main space um, and kind of just enjoy each other's company. What was the most difficult part of the last time you went? Ooh, that's a great question. Um, I think one of the most difficult things is um, staying in communication with people back at home. Um, Like I said, we don't have a lot of the tools that we now rely on, like FaceTime. Um, You are able to uh, call, you know, we have a landline at station and we can use satellite phones in the camp. But between the time change and just kind of the intensive schedule and kind of the, the limited communication, it's hard to kind of main context, main, maintain connections with people back at home. That's the Paul Smith College Adirondack Watershed Institute Research Associate, Leah Treybergs, speaking with the Legislative Gazette's Ian Pickus. And that about does it for this week's show. We had help from the New York State Public Radio Network. For copies, call 1-800-323-9262. Ask for program number 2243. You can listen online anytime at wamc.org or schedule a podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And join us again next week at this same time for more news on New York State government and politics. For the Legislative Gazette, I'm David Gustino.